tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. My time time flies when you're at your wit's end, but um, <laughs> I'm just busily chatting with the voice in my head, and, well, sometimes we forget we're doing a show. But that said, let us pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, that they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment on all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right. That's the big book on the coffee table. Let us go to the readings, which, of course, I have here, I think, uh, somewhere. Where did I put them? Is this going to be another segment of proto-Talmudic musings? No, no proto-Talmudic musings here. This is uh, Greek vocabulary, and it's quite a, this is quite a passage. Now, the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and it is traditionally thought that the Gospel of Mark is really the Gospel of St. Peter, because Mark uh, was, a, according to the tradition, was an administrative uh, assistant, shall we say, to St. Peter. And these are the, the musings of St. Peter, the reminiscences of St. Peter that Mark is using. And I believe that the Gospel of Mark is written to show that Jesus is divine. Um, it starts off, it's the only Gospel that claims to be a Gospel. Matthew, Luke, and John do not call themselves Gospels. Maybe that's for another day. But Mark says the Gospel of uh, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then the end point of the Gospel is not really the resurrection. The resurrection is kind of an afterthought. Uh, because the high point, uh, or the, the denouement, to use the word that I learned in, in English class, is when the centurion looks up at Jesus on the cross and says, truly, this was the Son of God. And the midpoint of the gospel is Jesus walking on the water. Uh, and uh, he meant to pass by them. And if you look at, at uh, so many passages in the Old Testament, to pass by is a reference to God manifesting himself. You know, the, 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 the wind that passes by the cave with Elijah. Job says, were you to pass by me, I would not recognize you. Moses was in the cleft of the rock and God passed by. He could see uh, the, the, the back of God, not the front. So um, 
this is this is a gospel, I think, or this is a treatise using the reminiscences of Peter to show the divinity of Christ. And it's so touching. It's got a lot of Aramaic and or not a lot, but some, you know, that 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 you hear that uh, when Jesus uh, cured uh, or, or raised a, a girl from the dead. He says, Talitha kum, and Mark quotes it in Aramaic. He's, I think he's quoting Peter. I can see Peter sitting there, and I'll say, that girl was dead as a stone. And Jesus just looked at her, I'll never forget, and said, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And she did. So that's what I think about the Gospel of Mark. Now, Peter, as we think of him, was kind of direct you know when jesus said uh unless i wash you you can have no part of me and he says well wash it wash my not only my feet but the whole schmear uh, that's a, a loose translation and then he says i'll follow you uh, uh wherever you go i'll go to the cross with you but then when challenged he swears i i swear and he was a fisherman and they do know how to swear i swear that uh i never met him so peter's impressed as kind of being a, a man of great passions and uh, not just passions, but um, um, impulsivity almost. So that's interesting. Now, this is the gospel. A leper comes to Jesus and kneels down and begs him and says, If you wish, you can make me clean. This is interesting because Jesus isn't supposed to make anyone clean. He doesn't have to be healed. He has to be made clean. He's a leper. And the Torah has great um, uh, strictures and uh, rules about how a, a leper is to be reconciled to um, uh, the, the, the community of Israel. Uh, they aren't just sick, they're unclean. And they're incapable of entering the temple, they're incapable of entering into worship and prayer. Um, this is a process that can be done only by priests. So he's asking Jesus to do something that Jesus isn't allowed to do, according to the the law. That's where we start. So he's moved with pity. He stretches out his hand. He touches the leper. You're not supposed to touch a leper. And he says, I do will it be made clean. The leprosy left him immediately and he was made clean. Then warning him sternly, he dismissed him at once. That's not what the text says. And then, uh, thoroughly enraged, he throws him out. That's what the text says. Uh, the the it's um, I, I suppose I could pull that up in Greek, but uh, it, it's what it says. The verb here is embrimaumai, which means to snort with fury like a horse. And the verb to dismiss, they translate ekbalo, which means I throw him out. Ek is out and balo is throw he threw him out and he said to him see that you tell no one anything but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what moses prescribed he says obey the law that will be proof for them what that will be proof for them that will be proof for them what's he trying to prove i have a theory <laughs> of course it may be wrong uh <laughs> this is I haven't heard anyone oh there's the salt shaker wisely wisely done um uh, I have a feeling this guy was what we in Skokie would have called a shill you know what is a shill a shill is the guy at the auction who says I'll take two bottles of that you know they're selling the snake oil 
um, uh, uh, he's there to to up the price at the auction, that sort of thing, a shill. Uh, in this case, the shill was sent to debunk this 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 self-proclaimed rabbi who's going about curing people. Of course, that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. And, well, guess what? The guy is healed. This really challenges our whole view of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, meek and mild, he never got angry. Are you kidding? He got angry. We see that he was, he was, this word embrimalmai appears a number of times in the Bible. And it is a strong word. Uh, Let me pull it up. Okay, yeah, it's it's a very strong word, and uh, um, we see it in in uh, um, uh, we see it in Matthew, uh, Jesus where where Jesus strongly in in the ninth chapter, the thirtieth verse, where, where Jesus says um, he opens uh, the eyes of of. Uh, Oh, is this Embermama? I don't see Embermama. Oh, yes, and Embrete. Yes, and he 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 instructed them forcefully. Uh, uh, this is this is the uh, the use of the word Embermama in Matthew. He instructs some blind men forcefully. Uh, um, See that no one finds out about this, but they went out and spread the news about him. So that's one example. There, there. This, this, this word is used about five times in 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 the text. So it's not a. Uh, this is something we don't want to admit about God. There's an anger about God. Um, uh, um, he he's angry again in in uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, in Mark fourteen five. Uh, because they are, uh, this is where, where, where they're saying that this anointing oil with which Jesus is being anointed uh, could have been sold for 300 denarii and, and the money given to the poor. He's very angry about this. So now if Jesus got angry, that means I can get angry, right? Um, no, <laughs> Jesus is God, the son of God, and he never got angry about what was done to him. He got angry about what was done to the dignity of his father and to other people. Scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. We love, we love to baptize anger. It's such a nice thing to, to, to be angry at someone and feel good about it. Well, uh, for you and me to be angry is, is really not, well, I don't know that it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know that it's appropriate. Uh, very rarely is it appropriate. Um, but we don't want to admit that Jesus wasn't always like the guy on the calendar on the refrigerator. So I, I think it's interesting. Um, I know it's challenging to say that again. Oh, he was filled with pity for the, 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 uh, um, for the leper, yes. Uh, I don't know if you were alive then. Uh, the voice in my head just said, oh, he, the voice in my head just said he was filled with pity. Yes. Oh, yes, he was filled with pity. He's moved with pity. And and he wasn't so much mad at the leper as mad, I suspect, at at the people who had put him up to doing this. You see, they were they were taking advantage of of 
of someone's illness. And this is makes sense. This is this is why Jesus would have been angry. Uh, but of course, he 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 was filled with pity. And the word for pity here, uh, it, it's it's related to the word for guts, splankna, which means your your inner guts, your physical guts. You know how when you see somebody fall off a bike and you go, "Ooh, that's gonna hurt." Um, that's splankna. He was. He wasn't just, oh, you poor thing. He was like, he, oh, he looked at this guy and it just wrenched his guts. So, yeah, he was he was very, very um, uh, filled with pity. I don't think it was this guy he was angry at. I think he was angry at the, the, the Sadducees, who didn't believe any of this nonsense. Uh, go show yourself to the priest. That should be proof for them. So, uh, you know, again, this is my interpretation of this, and I... I I'm not sure that uh, um, it can, it can, uh, yes, there's the salt shaker. All right, well, let's, let's go. I want to go, well, let me look at the time. Oh, we got plenty of time. We're good. I want to go to the other reading also. Um, let's see. Oh, today that you would hear his voice, harden not your hearts as at the rebellion in the day of testing in the desert. Um, this is from the 95th Psalm, and it's the Psalm, the usual invitatory Psalm, we call it. It's the usual Psalm, though you can vary it. As I said, it's the usual Psalm with which we start uh, morning or, or prayer or the, the the first hour of prayer, whichever it is for, for you, the morning prayer or the uh, office of readings. So... Um, I think this is a very, very important thing. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you have an evil or unfaithful heart so as to forsake the living God. Encourage yourselves daily while it is still today. This is a very important thing, the idea of today. Jesus says elsewhere, sufficient for the day is the trouble therein. Uh, um, that that we need to, to, to live today. You know, the devil wants us... Uh, to live at any time but day. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters does a masterful presentation on this. I forget which book, but it, it's it's in there. Um, he points out that we are destined for for eternity, yet we live in time. And the enemy wants us not to live in... This is the moment in which God gives you any blessing he's going to give you. Now is is the, the, the point at which eternity touches time. There is no such thing as the future. When you get to the future, guess what? It'll be the present. The past, C.S. Lewis says, has some reality. But the devil wants to get you to live anytime but now. Because if you live now and you are grateful for the current blessing and you are aware of the current, um, the current gift of God, uh, then you're living a, a real life. The devil hates reality. But... What I do, and many of you do, is sit around worrying about what if this happens, what if that happens, what's going to be, what this going to be like. We sit worrying about a future that has not yet come to pass. And you know, it's interesting that we think all of these possible disasters that can come to happen, they can't all happen at once. <laughs> there may be bad things, but well, God's grace is sufficient, and uh, the devil wants us to not notice the blessings God is giving us right now. He wants us to live in the future and living in the future to not appreciate the gift which is present. And I, I think that that is, is um, um, something I, I have a real personally, I'm going to confession to all of you now, I have a hard time with this. I'm always worried about this, worried about that. But 
this is this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If today you hear the voice of the Lord, um, do not harden your hearts. Uh, and then that psalm ends with, I swore in my anger they would never enter into my rest. We so want to, I, I don't know about you, but I want to enter into the Lord's rest. And the word for rest is a very interesting word. In Hebrew, it means encampment. We will never enter into the Lord's encampment. We will never really live with God unless we hear his voice today. Uh, so I think that's a very, very important thing. Now, this last line, uh, where did I put it? I, I've got so much up on my little bar up in front. Not, not, not the kind of bar where you have something to drink, but the little, the little signal bar. The last line, we have become partners of Christ if only we hold the beginning of reality firm until the end. What does that mean? Well, it is, of course, a little different in the text of Scripture. What it says here, we have become uh, uh, a sharer, an associate. Uh, uh, the word is, it, I think it really, really comes from... Oh, it means someone who possesses along with, you know, we, we enter into the Lord, we possess what the Lord has. So we, 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 we get what the Lord has. Uh, if indeed from the beginning of, from the beginning of the hypostasios, this is hypostasis, which means it really means the real substance, the, 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 the reality. I remember an old Pentecostal preacher who said, when you start something off, lay hold of your leading because you're going to need it. You know, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. The devil comes along and said, did God say, did God say you can't eat that? And Eve thought, well, I think he did. You know, I, well, no, you won't die. You'll live. You follow that the devil wants to shake our leading. When you hear from God, and I, I thoroughly believe that that's an important thing in the Christian life. When you know that God has called you to something, hold on to that. Why do you think that? Why do you think God's call? It's very important that if we think we have a calling from God, no matter what our situation, that we, that we know why. So we can hold on to it. And the devil wants to shake your leading. And that's what this is about, I think, that that at the very beginning of something, uh, God gives you the real substance, the real assurance of it until we have the uh, the the finished product firmly. So you need when when you're when you think of doing something, you think this is what God wants you to do. Make sure you know why you think it's what God wants you to do. Not just a feeling or you, you were inspired by something, but really sit and consider, is this what the Lord wants me to do? And then when the devil comes along and says, are you sure that that was God telling you to do that? Well, this is why I thought it, A, B, C, and D, and I'm going to trust God and I'm going to continue until it's done. You trust God. So I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, the idea of 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 getting your leading straight at the beginning of something. And this word, hypostasis, is, it's a very strong word. It means the reality of something, the underlying reality. 
Uh, we talk about the hypostatic union. That's related to this word. So, if indeed, from the very beginning, you, you, you got your leading straight, um, we should hold on until we're finished, until the thing is done. Um, I don't know. That means a lot to me. I hope it means something to you. But live in the present moment and don't second guess yourself constantly and don't worry about the future. Easily said, not that easy to do, but with God's grace uh, and uh, a lot of repeating, I always say the surrender novena. Yeah, you can do it. All right. Let's go to a break. We'll come back with letters, and uh, we will open the phones at 888-914-9149. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. And every time it rains, it rains. Panties from heaven. Shoo-bee-doo-bee. Don't you know each cloud contains panties from heaven? Shoo-bee-doo-bee. You'll find your fortune falling. Shooby-dooby? What is shooby-dooby? All right. Let's go to shooby-dooby. Okay. Oh, who put the bop in the bop shabop? What? Oh, they don't write lyrics, lyrics like that anymore. All right. Let's move along and go to letters. There was someone who I think sent me a letter a while ago. I just want to comment on it. I'm not sure. I have commented. Um, uh Yet uh, the the uh, I get asked all the time: Should communion can communion ministers give a blessing uh, um, uh, to kids in a communion line? You know, of course, you got to bring up the kid who folds his hands over his chest so he gets a blessing, so he doesn't feel left out. I don't want to go on. Oh, you can bring the kid up. It's the blessing that I'm talking about. Um, I think it's uh, Bishop Chaput uh, had a wonderful solution to the problem because you're not supposed to, the only person supposed to be doing a blessing during Mass is the celebrant, the priest or bishop. You can bless people outside of Mass. You should especially bless your children. But uh, um, the the a solution that I think, if I'm right, that now, don't quote me on this. Archbishop Chaput explains the manner in his, I'm reading an article, a characteristically lucid manner. Uh, so uh, what you can do is just say, may the Lord be with you. That's not a blessing. Um, when a kid comes up, just smile at him, say, may the Lord be with you. Uh, that will do because the blessing at Mass is the blessing at the end of Mass. Uh Celebrate, you know, lay people may not bless children during the Mass, and I think that the clergy, priest, deacon, or bishop, should not. But it, you can, if a kid comes up and looks at you, let's say, May the Lord be with you. That's a Yes, you may ask a question, dear voice in my head. This is a question. I mean, things are blessed during Mass, like when there's a sprinkling of the holy water. 
during yeah, the Easter but it season. Isn't, so there it is isn't, a blessing of sorts. There's a blessing, I suppose it, it is. But but that's that's kind of liturgical. Um, uh, but the word, I, I you know, the sign of the cross is not made with the holy water spritzer, and that that blessing with the sign of the cross, I bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's done at the end of mass, and that's that's the mass blessing. I remember uh, some kids who used to come up, get get me to bless them during communion. Then, of course, the final blessing, and they'd want an extra blessing in the vestibule. And, you know, I can say these things, but I'm like anybody. I don't want grandmothers angry with me for not blessing their kids, so I bless. But we, I think if if you're hinky about it, which I kind of am, a wonderful thing is just lean down to the kid and say, the Lord be with you. And uh, if people say, why didn't you bless the kid? Say, well, COVID. Blame everything on COVID. I don't know. But there's an interesting article if you want to to read it. Where did I get this article? Um, oh, gosh. I'm not sure where, where it's from. But it it's, um, hold on. The Code of Canon Law 1169 addresses the subject. All right. Those marked with Episcopal characters are permitted by law to grant consecrations and dedications that presbyter can impart blessings. A deacon can only impart blessings expressly permitted by law. So, I don't know. Enough. I, I, there, I've done it. I'm done. I, enough. All right, now let us go to letters, more letters. All right, this is, uh, 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 this is a fun one from, uh, uh, from Jim the Physicist in, uh, in Wisconsin. He says, after doing some years of computer management, I think St. Barbara would be a good patron saint for computers. She's the the patron saint of artillerymen. There have been days I've been sorely tempted to lob a little high explosive into a recalcitrant computer. But <laughs> I don't know about that. It Thank worked. Barbara. Your computer's fixed, right? Yeah, my computer's doing fine. It's wonderful. I'm, I'm totally happy. Oh, the Mount Moriah question. The Mount Moriah question. I have done some research. John from Sacramento wants to know what Moriah means. Well, as all things in the scripture, it can mean lots and lots of stuff. Uh, it may simply refer to hill country. It can also uh, refer, there's some indication in the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the Samaritan version of the of the Torah, uh, that that uh, seems, to, and I, I kind of like this one, it, it may be related to the verb ra'ah, which means to see. Uh, um, also, uh, um, the the Abraham said to uh, uh, call the place uh, the Lord sees or the Lord provides. Hashem Yireh. So the Latin Vulgate calls it in the land of the vision. Uh, So that's what I'm backing is that the Lord sees. The Lord has provided. The Lord sees. uh, so, So it has to do with visions. That's as close as I can get. So... There are people, of course, who think else wise about it. All right. So I hope that helps. John from Sacramento. I've been working on it. All right. This is a this is a, a, a bit longish, but this is from Clinton in Georgia. Um, you heard me mention how pro- inappropriate it is for people to clap. I sang in the choir of St. Joseph's in Vancouver, Washington. <clears throat> the director of music was a doctor of music and they were so good, they, they sang at the Vatican, I'm summarizing it. But I, in, this is an interesting line. In spite of all this, I have to say how humiliated I was. 
when people would clap for us at the end of the Mass, mostly because, and sorry to say, but I'm not singing for their entertainment. I'm singing to lift my voice in prayer. Yeah, that that um, beautiful music is very important. Uh, um, but this choir member was humiliated by the applause because they were doing it for the Lord. Uh, my suggestion to all choir members who sing only for the love of the Lord uh, try doing this. Just turn away and pretend you can't hear the applause. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. Uh, the, 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 this person, who was a member of an excellent choir, so good that it was invited to sing overseas, was humiliated by the applause because they realized it was for God. I, I was very touched by that letter. <laughs> this is kind of fun. This is from Thomas. Um, that He's found a new way to share my show. Uh, when my call display indicates a spam or solicitation phone call, I pick up the call and put the microphone in front of the PC uh, uh, speaker, uh, uh, the personal computer speaker. That way they get to listen to the show for however long they choose. I, I for a while, but I realized that if you pick up one of those calls, you get 20 more. It's like fishing. Uh, but I, I remember I was able to stop some people calling by talking to them about the Lord. And uh, I remember one person uh, said, that's not, that's not what this is about. I said, oh, it certainly is what it's about. It's what everything's about. Are you, I, we, do you know Christ? And they hung up. <laughs> so, so yeah, use those spam calls as an opportunity for evangelism. Why not? Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> this is kind of interesting. This is from Mary Jane in Chicago. Uh, you know, I often talk about people I know who died and lived to tell about it. Well, there's a woman who was electrocuted and was revived, and she spoke about the awful sin of gossip about your spouse to your children, the lasting effects that this gossip and the bad behavior has on them. Um, very interesting. I, I think that's very true. And even if you are, are have undergone the tragedy of divorce, you must not speak ill of your spouse or your former spouse, which I, we Catholics don't admit the possibility, but you mustn't speak ill of them because you see your children carry around in them you and their other parent. You know, it's kind of crowded in here. I got me in here. I live in here. And, and because I'm a believer who's baptized, I have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and... Um, uh, then, of course, I have the uh, uh, um, uh, my mother and my father. And if I hate my father or I hate my mother, I'm hating part of me. If you constantly badmouth the father or mother of your children, you are wounding not, the, not that, that spouse who you're angry with. You're wounding the children. Uh, the scriptures are clear, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you in the land to which the Lord your God is leading or has given you. Um, well, what if they're not honorable? It doesn't say not to honor them if they're not honorable. It says honor them. It doesn't qualify this. And St. Paul points out this is the only commandment that comes with a blessing. Uh, that that you are hurting your children if you badmouth one of their parents. You're not hurting that parent. They probably don't even know you're doing it, probably. You're just hurting the children. Uh, so uh, this woman who had the um, beyond and back experience was kind of shocked to find out what a serious sin that was to badmouth the other spouse. And I'm grateful for that letter. 
Okay, let's see here. This is, um, all right. Oh, very kind letter from Rosemary uh, in San Diego. But the question is, um, did St. John the Baptist and all present hear the words of God the Father, this is my beloved son, or just St. John and the apostles? Well, I kind of looked it up, and it's it's a bit complex. Um, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, it seems that uh, Jesus sees the dove. But then there is a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It doesn't indicate to whom that is addressed. However, a voice from heaven... When I read that, it sounds like it was an audible voice that a number of people heard. Now, Gospel of Mark, we hear that um, uh, there was a sound of, uh, he used an unusual word, a sound like the heavens being torn open. Uh, and and um, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, um, that would have been widely heard, one suspects. Uh, then in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we we see that that um, uh, Jesus is praying. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and Luke says he adds the word bodily form of a dove, not just just not like a dove, but uh, um, I think the words of it uh, are, are in the Gospel of of Mark. And in the Gospel of Luke, the words are to Christ, you are my beloved son. Why would Christ need to have heard that? Didn't he know that? I believe he knew it. I believe that's what the story of the finding of the temple is um, uh, about. I would suspect that that though the vision, uh, I, I don't know if the vision of the dove was seen. It was clearly seen by John. We read that in the Gospel of John, that John the Baptist uh, saw these things and heard them. But I have a feeling that more people heard the voice than just John and Jesus, or just John, Jesus, and and the disciples. Uh, um, that, that, to me, is the indication of a voice. And, of course, in the Gospel of John, uh, the evangelist, we hear John the Baptist saying that he himself saw it um, in a direct narrative. So we know that John the Baptist saw it, and heard the voice. But I, I, the idea of a voice came from heaven. Uh, we see in the, that, that these sounds from heaven seem to be widely heard. Jesus, uh, um, here's a voice from heaven later on. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Some people said it was thunder. Some people said they heard a voice. Um, it made me think of, of the miracle of Fatima. There were people who saw it all over Europe. Uh, I, I know someone, uh, Teresa, a dear friend of Relevant Radio, who recently passed away. Her dad was in the trenches uh, in the First World War, and he could see the miracle of the sun. The pastor of the church I grew up in, Monsignor O'Brien, was in Rome studying, and he could see the miracle of the sun. Not everybody saw it, but a lot of people did. So this idea of, of something happening objectively, these things are happening in the spirit, you know, I remember a book, Is Our Lady Appearing in Medjugorje? Well, Our Lady would never be appearing in a place. She appears in the spirit, uh, which is which is different. Uh, so I, I think that the voice was heard by many, perhaps not by all. That's just the way I look at it and what it sounds to sounds like to me when I read it. 
I hope that does not add to the chaos. So, very interesting question, Rosemary. All right, moving along here. Oh, I just wanted to to mention, uh, Peter mentions that uh, he sends me a little note. Um, Peter from Stockton, California, sends me a little note in both German and and his, his Spanish. Um, hmm, so I'm not the only one. All right, moving along, we're going to take a break. And the phones are open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We will be right back. You, you, you can tell the world about this. You can tell the nations about that. Tell them what the master has done. Amen. I love that reading. Um, and the rejoicing in that town rose to fever pitch. Usually the way it's read in church. And the rejoicing in that town rose to fever pitch. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> In a fever pitch. Oh, boy. 888-914-9149. I was just chatting with the voice in my head about I. I don't know that I explained it well, but to me, one of the most profound things in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters is his assessment of time. That time, you know, the only thing that has complete reality is the present moment. The past has some reality. The future doesn't exist, and it never will. Think about it. The minute that you get to the future, surprise, it's the present. It, it isn't sort of a progress, and, and it's a rearrangement of, 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 of the, pre the present circumstances constantly rearrange themselves. We can't conceive of life without time, but ultimately time is... Is, is not all that it's cracked up to be. Even in physics, it's not. Um, you know, this is the moment where, where, where if you live in the present moment, um, you're capable of, of so much more. And I, 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 I'm preaching to myself now because I'm constantly thinking, oh, what's going to happen? Is this going to work out? Is that going to happen? This is such a great lack of faith on my part. You know that that uh, there's a wonderful contemporary Christian song. I think it's by, is it by I forget Allison. What's her name? I forget. Uh, I know who holds the future. He's the one who holds my hand. Beautiful. All right, let's go to phone calls. Oh, did we do the word of the day? I don't think. we did. Ah, there's the gong for the word of the day. Uh, the, what was that going to do for the? Oh, uh, the desert. Yes, the voice in my head is right. Not desert. Desert. Uh, we always think, you know, you see the Bible movies and they're always in a desert. It ne wasn't necessarily a desert. Uh, what, what he would go into deserted places. Um, uh, uh, not, you know, we picture sand and great boulders. They had them there, but, uh, the East and South of Palestine, of the Holy Land had those, those places. But what it really was is an unpopulated place. And what, really happened is that Jesus would go up from the, uh, this is as I understand it, Jesus seems to have gone up from the Sea of Galilee, which was very populated. People crowded around that lake. It was very fertile. 
full of fish, uh, warm, and produced a lot of a lot of uh, agricultural products. So it was very densely populated. But you go up to up the hill, and it it's drier, and it, there aren't that many people there. It's just much less populated. Uh, the 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 Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee is is below sea level. They have a little sign on the road down to it, sea level. Uh, it's below sea level, uh, and and places like Horasing and little towns like that, they're up on the rim of of the Sea of Galilee, way up the hill, and uh, they're not very populated because they weren't really that that well watered. Um, they would have been useful for certain crops and for for uh, um, uh, pasture land, but but they weren't that dense urban settled area that the Sea of Galilee was. So get out of your head that Jesus went out and sat in the rocks. He may have done that um, uh, at the beginning of his ministry, gone to the Judean desert south and east of Jerusalem, which that's a desert desert, but. In his in his Galilean ministry, there really wasn't a desert like that there. So I don't know. That just I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, it's my job to find the other voice in my head saying my job. Okay, let's go to phone. Eight eight eight. There is something the matter with your fin. No, there's not. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. We do have a few lines open. Eight eight eight. Nine one four nine one four nine. Let's go to Steve from Bozeman, Montana. Steve, what can I do for you? Hi, Hi Father. Uh, the uh, I was thinking about the uh, the priesthood and the need for for more um, uh, uh, men to to hear and heed the the call of God to mm-hmm. to uh, holy orders, possibly. And um, you know, celibacy makes uh, things easier for our, our priests in some ways, but in another way, it kind of becomes a it kind of becomes a barrier uh, for people that may have a call um, to the priesthood to become priests. And um, I was wondering if it's, um, would it be possible for there to be an order like the Franciscans or the Jesuits that's kind of focused on and has a rule oriented towards having um, an order for married um, priests that kind of knows how to deal with um, what does the uh, promise of obedience mean when you have a wife and a family? You know, that sort of thing. So. Yes, 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 yes. She who must be obeyed, who wins, the bishop or the wife? That's one of the reasons I right. think that celibacy has prevailed in the Western Church. I, I was in so many parishes where had I been married, I would not have asked my wife and my children to live there. I mean, I was able to serve in really dangerous neighborhoods for much of my ministry. Um uh, and I was too stupid to know they were dangerous. But if I'd had a wife to tell me they were dangerous, well, that would have been different. I, you know, I don't think that's about to happen. Uh, let me, let me, let me share my theory. And you know, I'm pretty traditional. I like to think of myself as pretty traditional. However, in the first days of the church, there were um, uh, very small communities. Uh, you know, a, a, a church in a city might be 200 people. Maybe in the city of Corinth, maybe two, 300 people in, in the church. Uh, it was considered uh, a small sect within Judaism, which itself was only 10% of the empire. So small, small organization in the, in the first days of the church. 
And the priest, the uh, the guy who presided at the liturgy, was invariably, I would think, what we would call a bishop. And if the congregation grew or there were outlying districts, he might appoint a sort of honorary bishop without the clout of a bishop, but who could take the bishop's place at the liturgy. And they were called elders. The bishop was advised by the elders and these elders or presbyters, you know. And where did you get your presbyters? The real ministers of the church, the ones who did the hands-on work, were the deacons. The word deacon is a very Jewish word. It, a shamesh is uh, the guy who kind of keeps the synagogue in order, and that was the, the Hebrew word for deacon. So you had deacons. And when you needed a bishop, where did you go to get them? From among the deacons. Uh, for the m- much of the history of, uh, of, of, of the papacy, Bishops, uh, Mike Aquilina, I think he does an article, he might do a book about this, uh, but uh, the bishops of Rome, hence the popes, were taken from among the deacons of Rome. Uh, and and that, occasionally the presbyter, sometimes a layperson, would be elected bishop of Rome by the, by the, by the presbyters of Rome. Uh, the first bishop who was elected pope was elected in eight, around 850 A.D., a fellow named Marinus I. If you were a bishop in the first century, the first millennium of the history of the church, you would not ever be pope. A bishop was married to his diocese. Now, the system was that when you needed a presbyter, you took that presbyter from among the deacons. If he came with a wife, he came with a wife. If he was celibate, uh, he remained celibate. Uh, that gradually changed in the Western Church. That seems to be what happened. And I don't think we would ever create an order of married priests. I, I, I don't see that happening. Principally because a religious order was created uh, to allow men to fast. And celibacy is a kind of fasting. You don't fast from something bad. You know, what are you giving up for Lent? I'm giving up beating my wife. Don't, then you, no, that doesn't work that way. You give up something good. And monks fasted from family life and from married life. And increasingly in the West, the presbyters, the priests and the bishops were taken from among the monastic communities. So a religious community is meant, in a sense, to allow a person not to be married. I would not be surprised if at some point in the history of the church we went back to the system as it was originally designed of taking, uh, you know, I've always thought what we should have is a seminary for holy orders. A deacon is truly a share in the sacrament of holy orders. A deacon is truly ordained. And and um, those were the people from whom presbyters and bishops were originally taken. I, I, I can see us going back to that someday, but I do not think will happen in the near future. Um, I don't know if this answers your question at all or deals with it. Does well, that help a little? And that... That's kind of that's kind of where the origination of this question came. I I, I thought I may have had a call to, to the diaconate and mm-hmm. I went to our, to our diocesan meeting about it, and there were like fifty men and their wives. If they had wives there, I was like, holy mm-hmm. cow, this is a this yeah. is a lot of people interested of people. in this. I thought, man, oh, man, I wonder, I wonder, and we're you know we're struggling. We're doing better now, but we're struggling to get guys to go into the yeah. seminary for the priesthood. And I yeah. thought, man, maybe there would be a way to kind of find out in the middle here but yeah what what, oh. what you said certainly makes sense for sure so. i i wasn't going to talk about this today i resolved i'm not going to talk about this stuff today but i really think that the diocesan priesthood is is in trouble uh yep. 
it, the, oh, what the heck? Let me discuss it. Lord, help me to say, not to say anything stupid. In 1972, the Presbyteral Senate of Chicago asked then Cardinal Cody for an indult to violate canon law by limiting the terms of pastors. And they say that Cardinal Cody left the hall smiling because he knew that 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 uh, this would change everything and and uh, really centralize uh, authority in the church. Before that, there were two kinds of pastors, irremovable pastors who could only be removed by the pope and removable pastors who could only be removed by the pope. In other words, it took so much effort <laughs> to remove a pastor that uh, he could appeal to the Pope, and you know, why bother unless he'd really done something egregious. So it was assumed that a pastor died in his rectory. It was a lifetime appointment. The priests of Chicago changed that in 1972. As Chicago went, the nation went. Priests did not retire. They were the father of a family. And what has happened now is that... Uh, uh, you know, when a priest is 70 or whatever the retirement age is in a diocese, sometimes 75, and I think a lot of places are reconsidering this, that, that um, uh, um, well, you, nice party, a hearty handshake, and so long. It, it's, it's, it's not a system that, is, uh, that it really is viable. It, it, it's, okay. it's a real problem. And, and I think that the stability in the pastorate, is a, where there's a priest who's a pastor for a long time in a parish, especially if he's a good man, you get more vocations to the priesthood out of that parish. Because mm-hmm. you look at this guy and say, this is a life I could live uh, in service to other people. But the instability of the diocesan priesthood now, I think, militates against uh, priestly vocations. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I may be wrong about all of this, but I, I just really think, and I've said this every day, darn it, for the past few days, we really need to talk about the spirituality and the living situation of diocesan priests, because mm-hmm. the church without the priesthood is inconceivable. I also am a huge backer of the diaconate. I think that, that we do not respect the diaconate the way it should be. It's an integral part of the, of the, uh, the church as she was designed to function by the lord so i don't know you see you, there you go you set me off again oh well <laughs> no, yeah thank you so much i appreciate it father well god bless and pray for your priests because yep. um, uh, a lot of them really are facing difficult situations in their life oh 60 yes, seconds oh dear thanks for calling in michael you know again i just want to say with this last minute of the show that i can honestly say i have never once regretted becoming a priest that that despite all that's happened in my priesthood of of what of 45 years a priest i have never once regretted being ordained and if any young man is considering the priesthood or anyone is considering the diaconate i encourage you god will give you the grace and we need people who are servants and and people who are willing to sacrifice and you know if you do it right there's a lot of sacrifice in it. Someday I'm going to get it down and do it right. All right, speaking of doing it right, Drew is coming up, and he always gets it right. <laughs> 